Hey everybody, welcome to the How to Adventure podcast with Ari in the Air. Today we have got an awesome episode for you. Our first guest interview is with none other than my friend Adam Craig. Adam is a professional mountain biker from Maine. He has just retired from a fruitful 15-year career as a giant factory off-road race team member. He was on the World Cup circuit for years and went to the Olympics, and we're going to hear those stories. I would say that Adam's great takeaways here in this episode are about self-pressure, expectations, which lead him to explaining why in mountain bike racing, goals are for suckers, which is awesome. It's such a great takeaway. So get ready, get comfortable. Without further ado, here's my talk with Adam Craig. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Love you. Thanks, Frank. That's going to be the sponsor of this episode. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Frank Costa. <laughs> okay. We're here with Adam Craig. Thanks for being here, Adam. Thanks for being here too, Ari. <laughs> okay. I think to introduce you, I think that your Wikipedia page that someone has created is hilarious, informative, and accurate. So I'd like to just I'd like to just start by reading your Wikipedia page. <laughs> this should be good. Okay. Adam Craig, born August 15th, 1981 in Bangor, Maine. And please correct me if you if you hear any inconsistencies. Hey, it's on the internet. Okay. <laughs> he is a professional mountain biker currently living in Bend, Oregon. Originally from Corinth, Maine, Craig was educated Ooh, at the Exeter, Univ- Maine. Exeter might be too small to be on the map. Okay. Continue. Okay, let's let's scratch that from the record. Originally from Exeter, Maine, Craig was educated at the University of Maine. Educated might be a uh, a little bit too firm of a word there I for mean, that. I <laughs> mean, I majored in Tuesdays and Thursdays for two consecutive semesters. <laughs> yeah, and then got a sweet job racing bikes. So. Okay, okay. He is a three-time under-23 cross-country national champion. 2007 and 2008 national champion. Doesn't say what that's in. I assume cross yeah, country. Yeah, cross country mountain bike. And those were sweet races. Those, those were, were, those were yeah, the good old days. I'm proud of those. And he represented the United States at the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games, which, God willing, we're going to hear more about that in this, <laughs> in this conversation. Oh, the Olympics. Okay? But here's where, here's where this Wikipedia entry gets really good, folks. Adam Craig competed in several events at the 2013 Sea Otter Classic using a Mongoose Beast, a 47-pound single-speed fat bike sold for $200 at Walmart. <laughs> Craig then gave interviews under the pseudonym Manuel Beastly and competed wearing giant factory team casual apparel, which... When they say giant factory team casual apparel, they mean cut off jean shorts and a tank top. (laughs) Yep. Not one of my better moments. So today we're talking with Adam Craig and maybe Manuel Beastly at some point. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. Okay. So it also says that you were gold medalist at the 2007 Pan American Games in Rio de Janeiro. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually just uh, found a letter from the governor of Maine back then who he was real proud of me after that result and excited <laughs> really? about the upcoming Olympics. That's so awesome. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, all these things I, I didn't know. I didn't know. The Pan American Games. That's so rad. Pretty neat little event. Kind of a lead up to the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. I was in Rio. It kind of made me almost Rio's feel like Rio's an I, awesome city. I was just there. Like I'd experienced all that. Yeah. Well, that's great. And winning uh, some kind of bike race on a $200 fat bike from Walmart. Mm, I don't even think I won. I think I just did a couple of dual slalom qualifying runs and m- mostly got laughed out of the venue by okay, the people that could actually Okay, ride. you're right. You're right. Yeah. Okay, here yeah. it says that you competed. Uh-huh. You were not victorious. Kind of. Participated. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, it also uses as a reference the Sea Otter News Fat and Furious 
article uh-huh. that was in Bike Magazine in 2013. I love that that's what Wikipedia has. These it, are important facts. These are. Anyway, is that is that all we got? Or? Yeah, that is all we got. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we got. Which is pretty uh, pretty extensive list of That'll accolades. Do. That'll which do. Which is pretty amazing. So <laughs> I'm proud of you for uh, for. Riding in jean shorts mostly. I mean, the Olympics is cool, but jean shorts yeah, they're on a fat practical, bike. Comfortable, <laughs> durable. There you go. <laughs> and the people from Maine, that's just like your uniform. They're everywhere. From Exeter, Maine. Okay. So to begin, I think I would like to just kind of go over the the very beginning. These are things that I'm only learning about as we go along. But let's hear about your childhood as it relates to two wheels. Because la- just last night, I found out that you were riding dirt bikes in the snow as a little kid in your driveway, which is something I, I didn't know and makes more sense when I see you on a motorcycle these days. So let's hear about how, as a little kid, what role did bikes have in your life? So I grew up in a teeny town in Maine. Like There were 800 people, and the population of Exeter is still 800 people today. Um, and there's a lot more dairy cows than people in May, in Exeter, for sure. Um, so, gosh, when I was four, my uncle Neil brought me over a little, like, 12-inch wheel red BMX bike that was a fixed gear. Like, it didn't, wouldn't coast, no brakes, no free hub, just kind of a little fixed gear bike that I could just barely make it up my driveway on. Like, learn to ride on that and eventually could make it up the steeper side of the driveway. And, I mean, yeah, six or eight years later, I'd kind of gotten, like... Uh, just random, you know, department store mountain bike that I could go way farther than the driveway on. I was like, oh, this is cool. I was kind of riding up, you know, to the potato barn and riding around in the potato barn and hitting sweet jumps in the on the lawn there and riding across the stream and whatnot. So just kind of expanding my operational envelope around my homestead. Um, and then I was riding bikes enough that folks were like, oh, you should... Maybe we should try and get you like a sort of reasonable bike. So I think when I was 11 or 12, we went down to, took some, took some summer work money. My dad had put me to work doing various carpentry things and earned me a bike. Um, so I got a giant, awesome 24 inch wheel, sweet mountain bike. I mean, it was called the awesome. It was a giant, <laughs> awesome, rigid bike, you know, just a early nineties mountain bike. Right. Um, Laying the groundwork for your future with giant mountain bikes right, at an yeah. early age. Been, been there ever since, kind of. Um, and then I could go, I mean, I could ride to school with that bike. Like, it, I could get around and move, and I was old enough that I could make all that happen. And there was uh, the community at the local bike shop, Pat's Bike Shop, with Scott Seymour and Troy. Gosh, what was Troy's last name? Um, the two, like, local racer guys, they, you know, I was a little grown kid, and they are like, oh, we're doing this race thing this weekend. I was like, oh, I'll go check that out. So later that summer, I took my giant awesome to Herman Mountain, where I also had learned to ski, which was like a 230-foot-tall ski area just in, you know, giant. rural Maine. Tiny, good pitch, two T-bars. Um, and there was a downhill race at Herman Mountain Ski Area, um, which involved going most of the way down the bunny slope, Slowpoke was the name of the trail around the backside. Sweet bike trail, just riding your bike down this, yeah, grassy, rocky, BS terrain. And then you basically, in the downhill race, climbed all almost all the way back to the top to then ride down the other side, the Black Diamond side, where Snake and Jammer were. Those were the sweet mogul Black Diamond trails they didn't groom. And there was a rock drop, a little, little cliff jump, and I raced junior beginner and got like ninth place out of 11 kids or something like that. Like success got, right from the get-go. got smoked. <laughs> yeah. I think my time was twice that of the junior beginner category winner. Um, but mountain biking was a thing in Maine in the nineties. It was it like, was. there was a main point series that had hundreds of riders at events every weekend. And I was kind of like, Oh, this is sort of a neat thing that people are doing. And that was the only race I did that year. And then the next year started the series off with the main sport spring runoff at the Camden Snowball, a little coastal ski area, mm-hmm. a little bit bigger, maybe like 800 feet of vert. Um, and there were 70 kids in the junior beginner cross country race. Like that's a lot of kids racing mountain yes. bikes for, mm-hmm. you know, it's state of a million odd people. Um, and I think I got like 49th place out of 70 kids, like got totally smoked. I might've gotten lapped or something as well. And had a great time and just kind of started okay. racing more. And and at these events, are there upper levels? Are there professional mountain bikers at these 
Um, at these, I mean, like any rootsy local event, there might have been one or two kind of regional pro guys would show up just for, you know, some exercise uh-huh. and to race on a fun course. But it was kind of beginner sport and expert were the categories. And that was kind of what you moved up through. So my bike shop heroes, Scott and Troy, were the like fast expert class racer guys. They were. Yeah. They had sweet pro flexible suspension bikes and all kinds of cool stuff going on. Um, and they were riders, too. And I started going to the shop rides. And that's when I kind of realized that we could like with these mountain bikes we could kind of ride a bunch of really neat trails and a bunch of neat places there were we would just do rides through the cities of bangor and brewer and orono and we'd you know ride through neighborhoods and then pop in a you know public land or city land and ride technical awesome trails with really neat little scenery of you know swamps and rivers and whatever and then you know we'd eventually make our way back to the shop so it's kind of like oh this mountain bike thing kind of it's cool to go fast on it but you can kind of get around and Adventure, see some places on it tour yeah. Yeah, get out there. bike tour. Something like that. So that's like you're 14 at that point. Yeah. Yeah, let's say. That's okay, and right. your local shop dudes were kind of like the... That's how you kind of saw people being fast on mountain bikes and the the upper... The upper yeah, mountain. I realized they it was kind of inspired by. Mm-hmm. And those guys could ride anything. They were good at riding technical stuff. Like, that's what we had in me. We didn't have big hills where the trails were. It was just like rooty and rocky and muddy and sort of shitty. Like the trails were, and we loved it. And those guys could ride anything. Like they could, like if there was a section that was hard to make it through on your bike, the group would stop. The group, which was previously hammering, getting, you know, training, riding fast, whatever, would stop and like make sure, like someone had to make the section if it was makeable before we could continue on. So it was neat to see that component of like, in addition to covering distance, just like being able to, I mean, man versus his environment right that's uh-huh. a thing that we always do so this was just like kind of a funny little backwoods main mountain bike version of that okay so <laughs> so you're 14 you're 49th out of 70 at what point did you start was it obvious that you were good at this um gosh i mean yeah i was maybe 13 at that race 12 or 13 and by the time i was like 14 or 15 i'd been racing a bit and was starting to like you know i you know, started doing good in some beginner races and then they bump you up to the sport class. So I was probably a sport when I was 14. And then when I was 15, it was like, okay, maybe it's time to do the expert class thing or 16 maybe. And then all of a sudden we had a good race series in New England, the the Trail 66 series that just kind of the ski areas around New England that they had downhill races and cross country races. And by the time I was 15 or 16, I was doing those events and like pretty competitive in the expert class. Um, yeah, and just then well, a national, the national championships came to Mount Snow, Vermont, when I was sixteen, um, or I was, yeah, I was sixteen, um, and I showed up, never having raced any like all these kids on like the big factory junior, like the Devo team and all that, and like the real pros are at this race. I'm like, whoa, neat! And I somehow got second place because it was on a just technical, gnarly East Coast track, and there were a bunch of West Coast kids that. Couldn't I was just kind of, yeah, you're, I was, you're at I was home. just like, oh, this is another sweet, this is a bike race, we're doing this, and that got me on the national team. That was your break right there. That was it, yeah. I showed up at Mount Snow and got second place, and they were like, who's this kid with riser bars and a heavy eye to sweet Marzocchi suspension fork that worked real good, but was real heavy, like none of the racers would use them, and <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> and that was it. And that got me on the national team, went to a training camp at the Olympic Center in Lake Placid, New York. I was kind of like, whoa, this is really So by the time you were 16, it was... Yeah, like I had just turned, I think I turned 17 at that camp. And then we raced the World Championships at Mount St. Anne in Quebec that year as a junior. And that was kind of the, that's where the racing thing all kicked off. How'd you finish in that race? Um, gosh, 98. I just found a poster from this too. I've been cleaning my office, which has been a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) I think I was like 19th or 20th or something like that. But out of a bunch of kids. Yeah, out of a hundred kids from around the world, kind of cool. thing. Um, well, cool. I love I love that the story doesn't start with you won your first mountain bike race and then you won your next one and then you won the next one. You you weren't the phenom. No, I was in the trenches just like everybody else that starts at anything. <laughs> but I also love the fact that the big break came from being good at the type of riding where that race was. Yeah, if I had gone to that race in Colorado, I would have gotten 20th place. Yeah, they would have smoked you. Would have just been, would have been like, oh. But they came some... to your backyard and tried yeah. to race your kind of race. Yeah. And they was... couldn't They couldn't keep up. It was cool. And That's then awesome. fast forward 
10 years from that. And that was the two national titles I won as an elite were at Mount Snow on that same course. And God, I loved, I wish we were racing at Mount Snow. I'm trying to figure out a way to bring some kind of racing back to Mount Snow because that place is so sweet and just the culture has kind of died off there as it does. Okay, so wait. We should get back. There. Let me clarify. The, you, the two national championships you won were on the same type of track. Same track. That yeah, like there were sections of it. There were sections of it that were exactly the same. Really? That like the same root gaps had been working for a decade. It was sweet. It was, <laughs> it was cool to be able to. That's awesome. Do that as an elite. I feel you know? like I feel like that makes perfect sense in my mind from what I know about you and just how you operate. That it's not a phenomenon. You're not a phenomenon type person. You're no phenom, but it's a it's like a consistency. I feel like you, you know. It's it's the long game mentality that Adam Craig has that yeah and and knowing when knowing when the factors are conspiring to help you and when it makes sense to really push hard and knowing when they aren't helping you and you kind of just need to survive be smart and make it through yeah. and you know get to the next event or the next wherever get home kind of thing I love that I love that okay so that's how you got into racing mm-hmm. oh and I. At the same time, when I was 12, I was trying to start racing motocross, like had a sweet JT racing kit and had a little Honda CR80 um, and was like, we had a practice track at my, my friend Asa West's house. And we were both like getting ready to race, race motocross that summer of 1993 or whatever it was. <laughs> um, and in about April, when things finally melted out and we could start riding, I was on my way home from the gravel pit, we used to ride in gravel pits, you know, do hill climbs and make jumps out of the gravel piles and stuff. Have a good time. Um, and I was riding home through a field, tapped out in sixth gear on these crazy little two-stroke 80 race bikes that were fast and had good suspension, but had tiny little wheels. And I got cross-rutted and high-sided and, or no, what had I done? That was this. That was the second straw. That's what made my mom sell my dirt bike and get me an actual decent mountain bike with like a suspension for it was flying off of the dirt bike yeah flying off in the field the first time got me a concussion which i had to stop to go to the bathroom 25 times on the way to the hospital which was only a 20 minute drive and i didn't go to the bathroom a single time <laughs> um and then six weeks later my first ride back i crashed again and separated my tibial plateau um it was in a cast like that was the week school got out for the summer and I was in a cast all summer and basically yeah mom sold my dirt bike and got me a decent mountain bike and was like how about you try this mountain bike thing out huh. so there was a pretty big gap in my motorcycling at that point um which is fine and I yeah it's been so good I to... think that I think the it sounds like the 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 drive to have su sustainable practices kind of came down from from above for sure decision. yeah it turns out your parents are pretty smart I mean, yeah your, your parents, parents typically smart <laughs> typically support that and it yeah it was the best call i mean gosh the world of not that i'm obsessed with competition but if i had like gone down some kind of motocross racing path like i'd yeah my body would be unhappy right now i'm sure so thanks mom yeah <laughs> okay so in case you don't know adam has just retired from a 15 year mountain bike professional mountain bike racing career yeah, I mean, I've been racing for Giant for 14 years and was, yeah, racing pretty seriously for three or four before that. It's been a good run. I've basically been racing full-time since I was 17, and I'm 35. So, wow. Yeah. That's a lot of racing. For sure. That's awesome. Okay, so, and and you're healthy for the most part. He came into the studio on crutches today because he hurt his knee skiing with me the other day, but his, <laughs> his knee is fine. He'll be fine. Yeah, no, no just worry. a blip. There's no GoFundMe. It's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> but... What, when you look back, what do you think, what kind of goals, what kind of mindset in your career did you have, do you think that, that, uh, helped you keep it so sustainable that you're, that you're now 35, just out of 15 years professionally, you still have a functional body and have made a living for almost 20 years as a mountain bike racer. Um, my mantra through this whole yeah, delightful career of racing bikes has been that goals are for suckers. And I've already kind of mentioned the foundation of that ideology in that when opportunity presents itself, you're in the right place, in the right mindset, and you feel good physically and things line up. That's when you push and that's when you make 
when you really achieve the things that you know you're capable of, but to sit down with a pen and paper or a calendar at the beginning of the year and say, my goal is this, or my goal is that. There's so many factors that are impossible to manage effectively that having really stringent goals like that, which I did early in my career, just because that was what you had a coach and you had a, you know, this whole plan and it was to produce these results at these events. And I kind of realized that that just doesn't, it didn't make sense for me. It's not how it worked for me. And it was never what it was about was like saying this, like I knew I would always achieve good things for myself personally and to be inspiring to other people, but I would just kind of take those opportunities when they came. So goals are for suckers. Has goals always been are my... for suckers. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> goals are for suckers with, with having the goal of staying away from those kind of strict goals. Yeah. Going and with just the flow, achieving watching, things, watching and for the opportunity. Keeping yourself from making decisions that would compromise yourself in pursuit of a goal and like, as you know, th- as we become more adventurous in life, like knowing, okay, this was the goal, but it's painfully obvious that that's not going to happen and we need to refocus. And there's absolutely no shame in that. It's just how you make it through life healthy and happy and making it. I love that. I love that. My next question was what, what is it about the other racers that, you know, that got on the same kind of program as you when they were 18 that fell off when they were 21? What was the difference between them and you balance and it was i was so that that initial national team experience i i was in the right place at the right time and try to continue to do that throughout my life um but there was a u23 resident program being put together at the olympic training center in colorado springs wherein kind of the most promising mountain bike talent would be put in this pipeline to be developed with the goal of going to the olympics ultimately like you know funding from the Olympic committee to live at the Olympic center and train and become a racer. And I was, there were five of us that joined that program. I graduated from high school in 99 and Dexter, Maine, and then moved to Colorado Springs and in the Olympic center and started pedaling my little butt off. Um, and I was the least talented by, I was like the kid that just barely snuck in, you know, like the kids that were the focus of that already had world championship titles and were tremendously talented. And they all came out there with their bike and maybe like, you know, a PlayStation or something and like eight brave breathed and slept bikes. And I drove out there in my rusty Ford Escort station wagon with my kayak and my skis and my mountain bike. And they were kind of like, oh, yeah, there isn't going to be much time for that. We're going to be training. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, if there's time, I'll. And while those guys and I, all great people, like we had a great crew. We all got along great. We loved riding and traveling and racing together. But they just like their nose was so to the grindstone and they were teenagers still and they kind of just weren't having that much fun and they got the hard sell because they were had good physiology like good vo2 max numbers like u.s postal service was giving them the sell to transfer to race and road bikes and like race the tour de france with lance armstrong and all the layers that go with that and like they saw well they were getting that i was driving down to canyon city and paddling through the royal gorge of the arkansas in the winter breaking icebergs, you know, and going skiing and just kind of taking the opportunity to explore Colorado and become an adventurous adult, I guess. Um, and those dudes all burnt out. They're all faster than me and they raced for a year or two and just kind of didn't, you know, one thing or other befell each of them. And yeah, those guys, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been on the 2008 Olympic team if those guys had like made it through that time period Mm -hmm. in their careers and yeah so so as opposed to like a conscious long game that you were in it for the long haul you were just as a kid you had all these different fun things that you did you couldn't imagine going somewhere else to to colorado where it's just so beautiful for everything that you do go to colorado and not and and not do all that kayak and ski and yeah it so you think out. your other your other sports gave you the balance that forced I wouldn't say forced that like allowed that that long game to just naturally manifest in yeah. your because you yeah I never obsessed that much over anything and gosh I mean not that you know Jess or Matt or Pat or any of those guys were obsessive they just like were so focused on that and so goal oriented that they ultimately they experienced a lot of perceived failure because they had such lofty goals 
Oh, wherein wow. I was just kind of like, oh, this is what we're doing and it's great and we're working hard at it. Oh, I but, love that as a takeaway, just like a success takeaway. It, it That's, that's yeah. not the typical just work so hard. You just work as hard as you can and you just keep working harder and harder and you just keep working and working and working and working and finally you'll get it. Yeah. No, if you just have some fun and keep and it light hard. and yeah, yeah work yeah. hard, but different there's different approaches I but mean, not I think, killing yourself yeah and i think that was the best approach for those guys too i mean that was what they knew to do you know that's what they were doing and and do you think at some point during your 15 year career that you kind of like lost sight of that was there points where you were like finding yourself killing yourself and and setting goals and having high expectations of yourself in races not really not really. yeah and i sort of almost feel like i think People have misunderstood that as me being aloof or disrespectful or not committed or dedicated or not working hard just because the conversation around all that stuff never was really that inspiring to me. It was Uh more kind of just about appreciating the whole process and all the opportunities that it provides. So it's it's been funny in that like it's not a regret of mine. I don't think I would have performed any better if I had done things differently because I certainly tried all of those really stringent ways of going about it and just yeah if i'm home i ride my bike a lot it makes me strong you go travel and race and you're strong and you eventually get weaker from traveling and racing and you come home and ride some and maybe go skiing or paddling or whatever ride motorcycles and catch back up is that's awesome the passionate long game the Mm -hmm. accidental the accidental passionate long game i love that (laughs) that's so great right yeah Yeah, that's like that's like the best takeaway of all time I mean, it can work for sure. That's the passion-based lifestyle design right there in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. It's hard to ignore all the passion out there. It really is. It really is. So how do you, how do you, so when you were racing, you'd come home and you say you ride your bike because you love to ride your bike. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when I, I mean, I moved to Bend in 2003, four, basically. And then suddenly I had this whole, I mean, the, you know, Cascadia region of yeah. Western North America to explore on a bike which was awesome. And I mean, I'd stay home and train a lot and then I'd go and I've stayed home and trained a lot more than I've gone exploring. And when you stay, when you say stay home and train, you mean going out on your mountain bike and riding as fast as you can for extended periods of time or going out on my road bike and riding up and down Aubrey Butte eight times at a very specific wattage and heart rate Uh setting to work on a certain system in my body, you know, whether a certain range of my cardiovascular system and, yeah, a bunch of training, but I got the most, I think I got the most fitness and certainly the most enjoyment out of just, yeah, going for a long ass mountain bike ride yeah. on a single speed. And basically you have to ride hard a lot on a single speed and you rest a lot because you're coasting. Uh-huh. Then you ride hard some more. And that was kind of the freestyle training was always more effective for me just because it freestyle training. Love it. Yeah. Gave me a, gave me a little more enthusiasm. <laughs> okay. So let's. I mean, when I think about mountain biking, I, I've, I've mountain biked a, a fair amount and it's a good way to cover ground. I definitely can't go on hikes. I can't go on jogs because the scenery doesn't change nearly fast enough for me. I love mountain biking because you have proximity to trees. You're always f- constantly flying by, zooming by things in close proximity. So it's exciting enough for me, but I don't necessarily consider it the most adventurous thing. How, if you were to tell me what, what, what I need to change in my mountain bike game to make it more adventurous, what is it? Because you and I, we've mountain biked and yeah. you know, the urban enduro trail here around Bend, we do that. That's fun. <laughs> we get pretty adventurous in people's backyards for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, like a trail is set. It's not like cross country. It's not like backcountry skiing where there's an avalanche that could be potentially trying to kill you and you have to pick your own route up the mountain and then you get to pick your own very specific route down the mountain. That's kind of like how I think of adventure. Help me yeah, understand I mean, the adventure of mountain biking. There's places you can ride bikes and do just that. And gosh, that's the those are the only places I want to ride. Really, if left to my in my utopic world, it would just be hiking up ridge lines and riding back down the next one on goat paths or whatever. But that's not realistic, and it's not necessarily environmentally sustainable for a lot of ecosystems. Uh-huh. It is for some, for sure. And gosh, those are great ones. Um, But the way I manifest adventure in riding bikes is just going new places, regardless of where it is. Like it might be 
a 50 or 60 mile epic loop over a couple of passes through the mountains of wherever, whether it's British Columbia or, you know, North Carolina or somewhere in the Alps or just anywhere, you know, I mean, there's a lifetime of that. The other way that I see adventure on mountain bikes is riding, riding old trails and trails that weren't really meant for mountain biking. So you're never really, if you're riding bike trails, you can kind of assume that it's going to be pretty rideable, right? Like someone made this trail to ride a bike on. Mm -hmm. So there probably aren't any, you know, shark tank booby traps. Um, but I really enjoy, you know, covering a good amount of ground on old trails, whether it's, you know, ancient hiking trails. And again, in the Alps, I'm going to talk about the Alps a lot because God, there's just so much people have been there for so long. Mm-hmm. They've gone all the places already and they've really, been playing and really neat for a ways. Long time too. Um, or, you know, old civilian conservation Corps trail, you know, here in the Northwest that was built in the thirties part of the new deal and people just out there building these trails kind of for pack trails and kind of for recreation and kind of maybe to some fire lookouts, amazing trail that you never know what's going to be around the next corner. So I really enjoy that kind of stuff. Just riding bikes where they aren't really intended to be ridden because they're pretty versatile. Mountain bikes are good these days. You can kind of go up ridiculous hills and down even more ridiculous hills and you can cover ground. Like you can move. That's so. awesome. You've convinced me. Yeah. I'm convinced. Yeah. They're, they're a vehicle for sure. Yeah good vehicle to see new things mm-hmm. you can go far okay so recently you told me a story about that same thing you're riding on a trail that wasn't made for that where was that the trip you just got back from was it mexico oh it was yeah mexico. yeah mexico yeah gosh another great place for that kind of thing um had the good fortune to go and kind of you know, information flows through peer networks pretty well. And you've kind of got your, you know, people you don't know that you learn things from. And then you've got kind of your core group that you, everyone's on the same page. So somebody's went to Mexico two winters ago to kind of check out this emerging riding area. And they came home sort of raving, saying it was scrappy. And there were a lot of Mexican surprises, they called them, but just old pack trails <laughs> connecting these villages and farming communities through the Sierra Madre Mountains and Jalisco um so big mountain enduro guys had the bandwidth to put on a race down there this fall kind of a season ending enduro race we went and rode these trails around muscota and in the last couple of years a little mountain bike culture has developed there of just a handful of guys that are going and taking a couple of the surprises out of these trails just like unrideable things that would yeah just weren't were a little too much of a challenge um and the yeah i mean just amazing just the line that animals and the people that manage them are efficient. They aren't working at an excess of supplies or energy or time or anything. So they just end up choosing efficient routes to get places. And somehow that really translates amazingly to riding bikes because ultimately it's about efficiency. You've got a wheel, you're trying to keep it moving and you're trying to see where you're going. And yeah, the, the riding in Mexico has really opened my eyes to future trips down there and other regions because that stuff's everywhere and it's just another place i mean all of central and south america has that kind of i mean the entire world has that feel right humans have wow. been cruising around the world for a long time typically with animals because that's part of how we survive and now we've got these goofy mechanized devices that we can ride around and appreciate those routes on okay so it sounds like the moral of the story if i were to say adam how should i uh how can i improve my adventure on a mountain bike the answer is stop riding them on mountain bike trails. Yeah, kind of, for <laughs> go, sure. Go right Except on. then, I mean, the first thing you mentioned is that trees are flying by you and there's yeah. really a sensation of speed and uh-huh. energy and absolutely ride them on mountain bike trails, like to get your jollies or, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of adventurous riding on mountain mm-hmm. bike trails, knowing that every inch of that trail is going to be perfect for you and ride them on user built mountain bike trails. I mean, you know. We have a variety of land management agencies that do a great job providing trail experiences for a lot of people. But then we've got a bunch of crusty, crotchety trail bosses out there that are digging the exact kind of trails that they want to ride. And those might be the kind of trails you want to ride too. So there's, I guess you can make, it's not even about adventure with some of those places. My favorite place to ride right now, which I'm certainly not going to name, involves <laughs> going up the same fire road four miles or the same skin track or the same chairlift or wherever mm-hmm. you, you want to conceptualize it. But you pedal up a fire road and then you ride down this just, yeah, rabbit warren of 
amazing trails and there's there's no views you can never see the surrounding terrain at all all you can see is the trail in front of you and that's all you need to see because it's beautiful and it's yeah all the factors is that in america right there oh yeah that's in america <laughs> it's everywhere <laughs> i mean there's something like that everywhere and there's probably a land manager trying to shut it down but it'll always be somewhere so okay that's the other part that. is just the raw entertainment Okay, so if I were to ask you your favorite country to ride a bike and why, what would that be? Gosh, it's a tough one. Um, I've been lucky. I'd, I've traveled around and ridden a lot of places. Um, I kind of, I think I appreciate France the most because there's, it's beautiful. People are decent. They love riding bikes. Mm -hmm. And there's just, I mean, there's a lifetime supply of, classic old hiking trails and totally modern really ripping user built trails there that yeah i've going with I've france had, i've had a pretty amazing time riding in france for the diversity of like just raw dog really fun shredding on your mountain bike to being in the middle of nowhere wondering how you're going to get back like it's all mm. kind of right there and the views of the alps never disappoint yeah gosh oregon's good canada's good no that i new england i love riding in new, i mean everywhere there's there's a lot of great places, but I'm going to go with France for the ultimate diversity. Ooh, okay. Love it. Okay, so one of the greatest stories that I've ever heard from an Olympian is your story of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping, I think the viewers uh, deserve to hear it. I'm hoping <laughs> that you'll let us in here on the 2008 Beijing Olympics. It made you an Olympian, which... I'm an Everyone Olympian. loves the word Olympian. Yep. You're and the I'm... hometown hero. Everyone in Maine is so proud of you. Yeah. So let's hear this 2008 Beijing Olympic story for God's sake. Uh, so, I mean, it's, yeah, it was an honor to race in the mountain bike race in the 2008 uh -huh. Olympics in Beijing. It was, it was great. It was, I mean, that was, that's the pinnacle of my career, right? Like as a kids starting to race bikes anyone that starts doing any sport dreams of being in the olympics on some level and it was never really about the olympic dream for me it was about all the opportunities and just things that i got to experience on the road to the olympics and ultimately going there and trying to race well was what i was there for and i was racing well i was you know that year i was i was riding well like internationally i was competitive at world cup cross-country races like i was feeling my oats and you were 2007 awesome. and 2008 national champion here yeah. so you were on and i was on world cup podiums and like had good world cup overalls and like i was racing it was sweet like i and i knew that that olympics was an opportunity for me to the only way the olympics really matter is if you get a medal and then you really do have a platform to reach a wide audience and really inspire some people to appreciate or engage in the thing that you're passionate about yep. and you know you obviously want to, everyone intrinsically wants to share their passions um so i was really looking forward to the opportunity of i was like god i'm kind of i mean who knows right like i was riding at the front of world cup races all year and it's like it would take a tremendous stroke of luck but like i could do that at the olympics and as the season wore on the olympics were in august um I kind of started to get a little tired. You just race and travel and train. I'm like, there's only so much your body can do, but you have a plan and you try to, obviously your plan to be your best at the Olympics. And we did a training camp for 10 days before and on a Korea, a South Korean Island of Jeju. And like, I kind of just knew that like I was in a downturn in my fitness and I had to just like, it stressed me out because the Olympics were coming up. I was an Olympian. I was one of two Americans racing in the Olympics. And just kind of was like, oh, I'm sort of like, I need to get some rest, but I kind of need to train. And I kind of like, don't want to miss this opportunity, you know? Like, this is a great, this is the biggest oppor opportunity of my life. And it was a goal. And goals aren't for suckers, you know? <laughs> um, but I just knew that it wasn't, it was a long shot. So because of racing well all season or for the last few years, I was on the front row. Like I was eighth in world ranking or something like that so i was like i was the last guy to get called up to the front row at the olympics so i'm standing there in my usa kit like front row at the olympics pretty sweet right like you're oh. not back in the pack like you're looking down the start straight knowing that your destiny is somewhere down there um and my dad's standing next to me just like with his you know 
pleasantly understated smile. Like he's he's happy it's all worked out for him, but he's far from obsessed with it. He's you know yeah he's proud. He's glad to be there, but he's kind of like yeah it's a bike race, cool. See how this all goes. He's seen a lot of things happen at bike races. Um, <laughs> and obviously the Olympics come with like some cool gear stuff, right? Like yeah. you're going to the Olympics, so your sponsors are like, hey, here's a, you know, this or that or whatever. Here's your new bike. Custom your Fox this. Fork, you yeah. know, some custom Shimano shoes. So I'd gotten these sweet white leather Shimano shoes that had my name and the American flag on the Velcro strap. And I was like, heck yeah, all carbon fiber, like super sweet shoes, you know, racing only. And normally I would put some grip tape on the soles of these shoes or like even take them to the cobbler to get like a boot sole put on them just so I had more grip on my mountain bike, like my clipless pedal when I wasn't clipped in mm-hmm. um, on the start line. Like your first pedal stroke is pretty key. Um, got these shoes, couldn't find any grip tape. Wasn't really that worried about it. I'd ridden the shoes without like it wasn't that big a deal. I wasn't stressed about it. I was just like, ah, yeah, I guess I can't get any grip tape. Screw it. Racing tomorrow. Let's do this. Um, China doesn't have grip tape. I'm sure there was somewhere, but I mean, in our weird little Olympic bubble of Beijing, which was bubble-tastic, um, there wasn't any. So um, I wasn't stressed about it. Gun went off, went to click into my pedal, and slipped on the sole of the shoe just with slippery carbon fiber. And I slipped badly enough that I actually blew my other foot out of the pedal and smashed my crotch on the stem and kind of like crumpled into the barricades that my dad was standing next to i was lined up all the way on the right and my dad was right there and so yeah i rack my nuts and like grab onto the barricades to not fall down i'm kind of like in this awkward holding myself up while like tangled in my bike somehow my chains off and there are only 50 riders in the olympic mountain bike race which kind of makes it almost the easiest race of the year because we're used to 200 rider world cups where a slip up like that means you're behind 200 people Instead, I just was literally 10 yards off the back in the last place, like 10 feet into the race. I was off the back. Everybody was already gone. <laughs> Dang it. Um, Your big I was, shot. I was in 50th place and I was tired. It didn't even matter. I was tired and I was like, I rode my ass off for a lot. Okay, wait, 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 wait. What is, okay, so you're, so you're laying there on the half on the ground, half on this barricade. Yeah. Your chain's off. My dad's just kind of chuckling. He's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> your dad's, la- your yeah. dad's laughing at you at the Olympics. <laughs> he wasn't laughing at me. He was just like laughing at the situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, obviously, the the uh, the low pressure mentality that you've had through your career was passed down from your dad because there he is laughing at you, yep, wondering totally. what the hell you're doing on your side. <laughs> exactly. And what are you thinking at that point? Oh, I mean, I knew it was over, but I also, I mean, the thing is, it's almost more fun, like getting the whole shots great and like winning a race from the beginning is great, but there's more pressure to that. And I've never handled pressure that well, or I've never, I've never sought out high pressure situations other than obviously a lifetime of professional competition. Um, (laughs) But it's kind of fun to be off the back because then you're passing people. Right. So I was like, I kind of sat up, rode down the start straight, no hands on the bars. And was just like, all right. I guess we're just going to pass as many people as we can at the Olympics. This is going to be sort of fun because the range of abilities in the Olympics is one of the beauties of the Olympics is at a World Cup race, there's, you know, 25 French guys that are incredibly fast, any of whom could be in the top 10 at any weekend. And like the fields are so deep that you never see a lot of racers or a lot of nationalities and what mountain bike racing is to them. So. I mean, I'm catching up to the guy from Honduras and then there's an Ethiopian guy and like seeing and engaging all these guys while passing them was pretty fun and interesting to see kind of what their program was with this race. As opposed to a world Enduro Cup is like the 200 best riders in the world, no matter what their nationality. Exactly. Yeah. It's just whoever, you know, has risen. So like the Um, Honduran guy is probably not even remotely close. He wouldn't even qualify in the great bike rider. But I mean, just a different just has had a different racing experience or has a different level of experience. And they're stoked to see the like world cup racers racing with them. Like it's cool for them when someone gets a flat tire and they're like, Whoa, Julian Epsilon went by and he was going way faster than me. Like it's fun for them too, (laughs) in a way, or you hope it is, you know? So I set out through the field, riding as fast as I could, passing people like Sherman through Georgia, just like having a good time and dug too deep and got up like into the twenties or something. It was like 90 degrees out. It was hot and humid and oppressive. And I just, for like two laps, I was charging and passing people. And then after two laps, I was like, 
well, I'm pretty high. Out of how many laps? Six, I think. Okay. I think it was a six, like six four-mile laps race. And after the second lap, I was like, uh-oh. I'm kind of, I need to just, I need to have a drink and maybe a candy bar or something. I need to just like batten down the hatches. I'm not getting a medal at these Olympics at all. I'm not going to get in the top 20. Like I can't, I'm not catching people anymore. This is just kind of where I'm at. And I think I finished 29th. And I got lapped, like I got pulled with a lap to go in the Olympics after being on the front row as America's best hope. It was, <laughs> it was a bummer, but it was also so obvious to me that that's something I wasn't capable of an amazing performance that day, regardless, which sucks. Like to know that standing on the start line, just being like, your legs are sore and you just don't have that much energy to give. And you just, you know, the score and you have to accept it because it's, it's real. You know, in the days that you've got it, you know, you've got it and you use it. So I'm kind of glad that I just racked my nuts and have a funny story because at least I got something out of the Olympics. <laughs> I got so many things out of the Olympics, but the actual event was just, it was a bummer. It was a missed opportunity. And yeah, at least my dad thought it was amusing. <laughs> I know. That sounds pretty amazing. I, lo I, I love the, the realization there at the start, the disappointing realization that today is not that day. Yeah. You know, the and it's keeping, fine. keeping your eye out for when those stars align that you feel good. You know, it's it's the field is in your favor. The track is in your favor or whatever. And today is the day that you're going to push. Mm -hmm. But the other side of that coin is standing on the Olympic start line, knowing that your legs hurt. Yeah. And that like, you've been. Oh. You've, yeah. And that's probably why I missed my pedal because my <laughs> muscles just weren't working right. I know how to clip into my pedals, you know. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that was just how that's how you hamstring yourself, right? Yeah. Um, but it was and it was interesting seeing like knowing, I mean, you know, Julian Absalon won another gold medal at that race. And that guy is tremendously talented and is still winning medals at, you know, he's my age. He's he's a year older than me and he's been racing forever. And knowing that he confronted all those same challenges that I did the entire season and he still was his best that day. And, you know, I think Christoph Souser was second. And maybe Nino Scherter was third, or that might have been juxtaposed. And Nino was an up-and-coming, super talented rider. And it was really cool to see a 22-year-old get a medal in his first Olympics. And just like, I'm a fan of sport. And it was really cool to like be there and watch those guys do their thing, really appreciating the talent that they have. And knowing on a base level that like they have, those are the guys. Like Those were the heroes of the mountain bike race at that Olympics. And they deserve to be. And I, like, I wasn't going to be that at those games. And it was... That's fine. That's Those awesome. guys are G's though. Those what guys a great, what a great story. What a great <laughs> story. Thanks for sharing that. That's a that's a humble that's a humble Olympic tale there. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry <laughs> for being such a screw up. <laughs> I'm not disappointed at all. Perfect. It, it totally it, it it pretty much lines right up with everything I know about you. That no. Why, why would you have so much self-inflicted pressure? Self-inflicted pressure doesn't... It helps some people, I suppose, but it doesn't help you, so why would you yeah, have that? Now we're just playing it live. Yeah, and your dad was there to laugh at you as you were on the barricade. That's all great stuff. It's <laughs> yep. all great stuff. I feel like we could make a movie about that. The rising young star, two-time <laughs> national champion, the gun goes off, he racks his nuts, falls over, his dad laughs at him, and he tries to catch up the whole race. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, what, well, uh, I think else? we're all pretty proud of your your uh, your racing career as well as your Olympic performance. Yeah, no, it's been a good run for it, sure. It's been a good run. Okay, it has been a good run. And what's next? What's the next? Uh, what's the you know goals are for suckers? You know, what are those sucker um, goals you got? So I've been. I probably have. I mean, I still don't have any goals, but I've certainly got a more diverse uh set of ambitions at this point giant's been great and they're gonna stick with supporting me in the next couple of years of my whatever this renaissance of my bike career is i've always just been a bike rider i mean i'm good at racing and i love racing but i've always ridden bikes because i love to ride bikes and i'm really genuinely tremendously excited to see where that goes from here and it's going to go in a few directions but I've always worked with Giant on product development stuff and I'll continue doing that and SRAM, one of our major sponsors and just kind of whoever needs help with making bike rides better for people is something I've always enjoyed. But even beyond that, um, I love trails and seeing, I mean, we've talked about trails a bunch already and like 
you can't ride mountain bikes without trails and maybe it's sort of lame that you need trails to ride them on but trails can be so inspiring that it's not a it's not a bummer not having a blank slate on mm-hmm. your bike like having the perfect slate in front of you is great to focus on too I like that. so i'm excited to get involved in some or get more involved have more time to be involved in trail construction and renovation and advocacy and we've got some really good momentum going with both government agencies and private groups just working on kind of giving mountain biking's in a good spot right now the bikes are good you know young people that learn to ride recently are becoming adults and they're good riders and they're open-minded and they appreciate a really inspiring riding experience so i'm pretty pumped to be just digging cool trail whether it's you know getting the 1951 willamette ranger district map and unearthing some old ccc trails that haven't seen you know hoof foot or tire in decades and a couple little tweaks on those make them ride real real nice or build a new trail for kids to ride or pump tracks or just kind of whatever so i'm really excited about that um and ultimately i've kind of been i'm an adventurous spirit and that's always what's driven me and racing has been a vehicle for that and i again i'm very fortunate to have had that but I'm looking forward to actually showing people a good time on bikes through some different guiding projects or just riding with people, going going for shop rides, going riding with whoever. I'm a social guy and I appreciate showing people a good time, whether it's you or someone I've never met. So we've got a couple of different guiding initiatives in the works in the region and that'll grow to a lot of places. So looking forward to folks coming out and seeing a good time um what else oh i'm on the hook for some content creation which is cool another part of the privilege we've been given to inspire Mm -hmm. folks um so it'll be part of some photo trips and editorial trips i'm going to try and do some writing and make some videos people like videos these days and it's it's a good time to be doing that work there's a lot of good stories to tell so do some storytelling digitally and maybe in an analog format and yeah just i don't know keep keep spreading the word about riding bikes which is an elective pursuit but an inspiring one so here I we agree. are well good job congratulations <laughs> was on that it. was that too rambling and run on no it was beautiful just yeah riding well, bikes is yeah. what we're doing there's a lot of ways to do it yeah good job congratulations on your successful mountain bike career we're all proud of you stoked to see the next chapter and thanks for being on the podcast thanks for having us Ari. we're proud of you for spreading the word to the good people of our community. The good word. Okay, we'll see you soon. Okay, folks, there you have it. That was an awesome talk with Adam Craig. I hope you got all that. Tune in for the next episode, which is going to be an interview with Dr. Jared Anderson. Jared is a dentist here in Bend, Oregon. He is also the current national champion paraglide pilot here in the United States. He's become an owner of a dental practice and the national champion in the same year, which goes to show how balanced his life really is. So that's what we're going to talk to Jared about. He's got a bunch of great takeaways. Tune in. Hope you guys enjoyed this show. We'll see you next time. Thanks.